Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Welcome to Bad Dad, Rod Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. And as always, dad is an energy, not a gender. It's a special day today. It's your birthday. Oh, big birthday, baby boy. Happy birthday today. <laughs> Thank you. Yep. Uh, on the day that we're recording this, turn in the big three, four. And uh, we already did gift openings. And you got me some really cool stuff. Thank you, babe. You are welcome. Um, happy to happy to be here. Happy to be here with you and our, our stinky boy Thompson. And while we won't be covering it on the show because we've already covered it, we're gonna go see Godzilla minus one minus color tonight. I'm so which excited. was a happy coincidence that it was playing at our favorite theater on your birthday at a like decent time. So we'll be there. I'm so excited. Let's get into the smackaroonies this week. The first film of the week was a mystery movie pick, and I decided I wanted to make us feel sad, (laughs) Um, but in that, like, way that we like. So I picked the 2017 drama, apparently fantasy, mystery, apparently, a ghost story. You can tell I don't really agree with some of those genre choices. (laughs) It was directed and written by David Lowry, and it stars Casey Affleck, boo, as C, Rooney Mara as M, and Will Oldham (laughs) as Prognosticator. The synopsis is, in this singular exploration of legacy, love, loss, and the enormity of existence, a recently deceased white-sheeted ghost returns to his suburban home to try to reconnect with his bereft wife. What did you think of a ghost story? I'm so glad that you picked this because it's one of those ones that we both really, really liked, but we watched it just before we started the podcast like mere months, uh, if not weeks before we started. So we, we haven't revisited, revisited it in a while. I was very excited that you picked it and I've wanted to cover it ever since we watched it the first time. Cause you're right. It, it, it slots right into the stuff that we love. I, I can't remember. I don't know if you remember offhand the term that Charles Melton used. Sorrowful hope. Yeah. That, and that, that exists within the world of this movie 
I find a ghost story to be just, it's truly hauntingly beautiful and sad. And it just, you, I feel like it uniquely portrays how gutting and devastating and visceral grief can be. And there's just something so simple and kind of childlike to using a sheeted ghost as kind of the conduit into a story like that. Yeah, I mean, I I really like the idea and the imagery of ghosts. Skeletons as well. Mm-hmm. Those are two that I I like when they show up around Halloween. But ghosts in particular, I find it's such a contradictory thing because I was raised without any honestly any knowledge of religion like that was just something I wasn't taught I went to a public school my parents didn't talk about it my mom is not a spiritual person my dad was spiritual in a very like secular way Mm -hmm. um and so it wasn't until I was like later elementary that I even heard of the concept of an afterlife and so you know the things we're taught when we're young hold strong it just didn't sway me by that point in my life. I was like, oh, one time I asked my mom what happens when you die. And she said, you go in the ground and the worms eat you. <laughs> and I was like, in grade two. That's, that's like really intense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was just like, like, so like, I don't think she was trying to be mean, but it was just like, that's the answer. Yeah. Um, Scientifically, that is what happens to a lot of people. <laughs> that, that is true. Um, my dad, on the other hand, he had a bit more spirituality because don't know if we've talked about this story on the podcast, but he got in a really bad work accident when he was 16 working in a mechanic's shop when a hubcap that he was working on or a tire that he was working on, he didn't have it caged and it blew up and the metal part blew up and hit him in the face, obviously at an extremely fast speed. And he died like he flatlined. They had to bring him back. Um, He lost an eye. He had chronic pain. But he always said that, like, something happened. Mm. Now, how you interpret what that is could be scientific, but he always saw it more spiritually. Um, The contradictory part for me is that I don't particularly believe in an afterlife, and yet I kind of believe in ghosts. Mm. So I don't know how that squares away. But depending on the context, then, of how a ghost is presented... They can really scare the crap out of me in horror movies. Demons don't scare me because I don't believe in those. Mm-hmm. But ghosts, they mm-hmm. can. But then ghosts can also, in the context of something like this movie, can be really sad and not scary. Mm-hmm. Um, or in the context of something like Beetlejuice, they are kind of sad in Beetlejuice and kind of scary, but also very cute. <laughs> so yeah. I'm I'm fascinated by that concept of not of haunting as the ghost or the the person who's passed trying to connect rather than like trying to harm. Yeah. I I I agree and I think that that works. It works so nicely. I'm with you. Like I really like I like and I prefer ghost stories and thinking about ghosts like growing up. I don't know if I've spoken about this on the podcast but Growing up, I went to Catholic school from kindergarten up until grade 10. And my family wasn't religious. We didn't practice religion at home. It was mostly a proximity to the school thing. I just started going there because it was close to my house. And I continued in that stream because of 
my, all the friends that I made because I was in it for so long. And it's so interesting because I never really, I don't feel like I adopted anything or like I was never converted <laughs> or taken particularly much with the religion or wanting to engage with it or like seek it out. Um, the only time I would pray would be like around Christmas time when it's like, Oh, please can I get this like video game that I wanted or something? But it's so funny cause it revealed itself when you and I got together, when we'd be playing jeopardy and I would just like crush any like Catholicism related categories. And you're like, how do you all know all this brain. shit? Oh yeah. The, the thing about a ghost story is it's secular. Yeah. Like there's no religious aspect to it. Well, and then I think as I got older and I started kind of thinking a little bit more for myself and I moved out of the Catholics, the Catholic school system, like I just kind of started being taken with the idea of the afterlife, not just being heaven and hell, mm-hmm. but being maybe it there, there are spirits or there, there could be ghosts or apparitions or things that we couldn't explain within this sort of, within within the sort of context of ghosts that could haunt a place. And like, I remember being told a story about my mom's dad, so my grandpa, who was like a very serious man and was not a, not really a kidder and didn't mess around. And then I guess at, at one time when they were growing up, he was in the basement of a house that they lived in and he just got chills up his spine all of a sudden. And then he swears that he hears a voice from behind him say, get out. Very like that one place in Donkey Kong 64. Yes. Which always scared the crap out of me. Yes. Get out. <laughs> I would shit my pants. But I guess he just like walked upstairs and was just like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting out. Um, so like that's scary. And I, I'd like to, I like, like you're saying, there's kind of, at least in media, that sort of uh, spectrum of ghosts that might be more malevolent and then ghosts that it just might have unfinished business and just can't there's something that won't allow them to leave and i think what is so compelling and so like deeply moving and sad to me about this movie is that character of c as a ghost doesn't even really seem to be able to actively think about what's going on. It's just this pull mm. and this like forgetting. And it's so incredible because this film has very little dialogue. Mm-hmm. The ghost never speaks mm-hmm. other than a couple subtitled moments with another mm. ghost. Um, so you're left as a viewer to interpret the feelings and thoughts of this, sheeted ghost and I mean I don't think this movie is for everyone first of all it's really really slow Mm -hmm. a lot of people hate the part in the middle with Will Oldham Mm. I just get scared by it Mm. when I think about the things he's saying in it I want to die Yeah. Um, and then it gets like kind of even more this probably where that fantasy genre part is coming in 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 the last bit I think it's incredible. And then also the mileage is going to vary depending on if like you just think it's dumb that he's a sheeted ghost. Mm. Right. So David Lowry said about that choice, because I don't think I would like this movie possibly at all if it was just a person and particularly Casey Affleck, who I don't like because Mm -hmm. he's done some gross, gross things. If it was him Mm -hmm. standing there, it wouldn't work as well. Mm hmm. 
it's something about that image. And so David Lowry said about that choice, he said, quote, I just loved that image. I love taking something that is understood to be funny or charming or sweet or naive and instilling it with some degree of gravity. Mm -hmm. Well, even the way that the sheet itself comes about is bleak in its own right. Um, And I think that the, that visual is so universal of a sheeted ghost and it's honestly, like you were saying, it's one of my favorite visuals of all time. I mean, we both have tattoos of sheeted ghosts on ourselves. And I feel, I, well, first of all, I want to know if it's Casey Affleck underneath the sheet the whole time. Um, not not the whole time, but most of the time. Um, it's really expensive to have Casey Affleck there. No, I think he was almost always there, except for when there had to be two. Hmm. Um, and then I think in like maybe some pickups later on, mm-hmm. um, what is interesting about it is I guess David Lowry was like, oh yeah, we'll just throw a sheet on him and it'll be great. No, <laughs> they tried that. It looked terrible. So it was this whole contraption that had to be like puppeteered and he had initially a lot more intention of like having this emotive acting coming from Casey Affleck, but as soon as it got to be this like whole like sewn contraption with multiple layers and like puppeteering going on underneath it, he had to rethink it. And he said, slow everything down with that figure of the ghost. And it became something that moved specifically slowly and rigidly, which wasn't initially intended. Um, I personally think that works so well and it it mirrors and elevates that exploration of, what it feels like to have lost someone, something. And it doesn't have to be to death either. Mm -hmm. Like the concept of ghosting comes from the term ghost. Mm -hmm. It's this particular kind of loss that haunts, right? I'm really Mm -hmm. taken by those words, by those ideas and how we think about them in the present moment. And I just think this film explores that in such a moving and thoughtful way. Yeah, I 100% agree. And like to the puppetry of the ghost too, like it doesn't work if you can, if there's moments where you can see Casey Affleck's feet peek out from underneath the sheet or his hand peek out or something like that. Like I almost think of it as just, it is Casey Affleck in human form, but the sheet acts acts as this barrier to the real world where and, and it makes it inaccessible to him. In, a way that, in the way that he remembers. And to us, right? Like by having him completely sheeted, we don't see his face. We don't see any of his limbs. We, Like you said, don't even see shoes. We've lost him too. Mm-hmm. Not that, I mean, you care about the character. The first time we watched this movie, it wrecked me. You cried the first time, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. There was just like, I can't even bear to think about one of us losing the other one of us Mm -hmm. in either scenario. It makes me so sad. Mm -hmm. Like we got to be old. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, And this, like, especially I can't imagine like Casey Affleck situation of dying and then being stuck in this house and having like having to be there for every moment of someone dealing with the immediate effects of loss and then starting the process of moving forward. Like that would be that would be so difficult to go through. But it's such an interesting thing because the ghost seems to be almost reverting back to this like purely emotive state where there's not 
as much thought connected with it. Like as the movie goes on, you feel like the ghost is forgetting Mm. who these people are, what this space means, but there's this like primal emotion, emotional attachment to it that leads to these like outbursts or moments of extreme sorrow Mm. and this lingering that like can't even be named by this figure, Mm -hmm. which also feels so true of loss, right? Like when you're navigating grief And I know you haven't experienced the same loss as I have with losing my dad, but we've all experienced losses. Like you have had people like grandparents pass away and I would consider your relationship with your dad a loss. Mm -hmm. And we've all had breakups and friendships that drift away or that purposefully end. And those are all losses. And another thing that this movie explores is like moving away from a house, right? Like there's many different types of loss and something that this movie explores so well is the way that you can like that, that emotional response to the loss can kind of pop up out of nowhere Mm -hmm. through that figure of the ghost. We're like drifting, drifting, drifting angry. Right. Yeah. And I feel like that's such a strong mirror to grief, which can like, seven years later when you haven't even been thinking of it, all of a sudden like you are crying in your car because a song came on. Mm-hmm. Right. So I just, I think that the film does such a phenomenal job of exploring it in a way that allows the viewer to think about how they feel. Um, yeah. I, I felt to your point too, like I felt, I felt emotional around the, the loss as it pertained to people, but I felt, I felt particularly emotional as like the loss as it pertained to place and home. Yeah. So David Lowry has talked about how this movie came about kind of because two things were happening at once. Um, one is that he was going through an extreme existential crisis. He was like reading about the world ending. Um, and so he said about this, he was having quote, an existential crisis. I was not feeling optimistic about the future of mankind. I felt the world was on its way to ending And this film became my way of dealing with those issues. So that's the one thing that's happening. But the other was his wife and him had differing opinions about whether to move to a different state. Mm. And they were, she wanted to leave and he wanted to stay, which you see kind of in the movie too. And he was really attached to the house that they live in. Um, And so he says that this film is about, quote, attachment to physical spaces. Mm. And the house that they filmed in, I guess, is a very, very similar layout and look to the first house that he lived in with his wife. Mm. Um, and so that's like built into what's going on in this movie. And I am somebody that's really attached to physical space. And, you know, right now my oldest sister is on this journey to trying to find things about my dad. And I've talked very briefly on the show about how he owned a porn store when I was growing up, but that's since been demolished. Can't go there anymore. You can go to the location, but Mm -hmm. the building isn't there anymore. And we don't even have a picture of like the logo Mm -hmm. because of course, when we were younger, that was embarrassing. And now it's like, well, that was a part of dad and a part of our lives and a part of what makes us who we are. And we wish we could find it. So she's trying to like find ads and back issues of paper, like now and then style. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I feel that attachment. I remember when we moved out of my childhood home when I was 19, you and I were just about to start dating. Like I, when I sat in like my empty bedroom, I felt so emotional. Mm-hmm. 
like that this just isn't going to be my home anymore. Mm-hmm. And you and I have lived in a lot of spaces. And recently I took the train, which I hadn't done in a long time and went and parked by like the first place we ever lived in together. And I was like, that place was gross and we lived mm-hmm. in it too long and we moved out because we got broken into. And there was a lot of like psychological trauma happening at the time because of that. Like I was not doing well. Um, because I came home to the break-in by myself, but there's a lot of memories in that place. Mm -hmm. Like we lived almost five years of our early relationship there. And I'm sure if we were to like knock on the door and walk in, like there'd just be so many memories that came back because place has such a potent connection to memory. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think this film is amazing. I know it's not for everyone. It's incredibly slow. It gets weird. It has this like extended existential pretentious bit in the middle, but I find it so moving. Yeah, I agree. I feel like you just need to let the movie take you and guide, guide its way, guide, let it guide you through it. And if you're able to do that, I think you could really enjoy it like we have. I'd really like to see it in the theater one day. We'll We'll see. We just need to fit it into a curation idea. That's what we need to do. How did a ghost story make you feel? Profoundly moved. How did it make you feel? Similarly, deeply moved to tears by the way the imagery is used to explore love and loss. Gorgeous. Okay, the next movie was a mystery movie pick from yours truly, the birthday boy himself, and I wanted to revisit the 1996 comedy family fantasy film, Matilda. It was directed by Danny DeVito, and it was written by uh, Nicholas Kazan and Robin Swickord and based off the book by Roald Dahl. And it stars Mara Wilson as Matilda, Danny DeVito as Mr. Wormwood slash the narrator, Rhea Perlman as Mrs. Wormwood, Embeth Davids as Miss Honey, and Pam Ferris as Trunchbull. Synopsis. A girl gifted with a keen intellect and psychic powers uses both to deal with her crude, distant family and her and free her kind teacher from their sadistic headmistress. Uh, okay, what do you think of Matilda? Matilda's an absolute classic. Another childhood staple for yeah, us. Yeah, I've been watching this forever. Fun story, I don't know if you know this. My second oldest sister and I, especially as children, had a lot of ups and downs about whether we were friends or not. Um, when we were buddies, we were really good buddies. But when we were not buddies, it was pretty gnarly. Mm-hmm. But a particular area where her and I always bonded was over Christmas. And one year when everybody was out of the house, because my dad worked nights at the porn store and then he would be watching us during the day, but he would just be asleep so we could do whatever we wanted. We unwrapped all of our gifts and then rewrapped them. No way. It might not have been all of them, but we did unwrap Matilda on VHS. That's wild. And then rewrapped it probably not well. I think my, I don't, I'd have to ask Britt because she's older than me and probably remembers better. But I think the story I've been told is that my mom was like, what happened to this present? We were like, the cat got at it. Well, I was going to say, like, how does your mom not Because my mom wraps presents very well. Yeah. And also is a shrewd observer of changes in environment. Um, so anyway, one year we, we knew ahead of time based on our devious deeds that we were getting Matilda for Christmas. You little but because of that i remember that we got matilda for christmas otherwise i probably wouldn't remember (laughs) i loved this movie as a kid and i love it now 
Yeah, uh, I'm in the same place. We previously covered the the more recent musical version that was on Netflix, and we saw the musical at the at a theater here in Edmonton. And the musical for sure has some bangers. It is really great, but this movie moves me so much more yeah, with the story and the and the characters. I mean, first off, I love that Danny DeVito made this. Like, I love that he was the director and I love that he was also the narrator and his narrating voice is so nice compared to <laughs> who his character is in this. I find that so lovely. And I love that the world, I love the world that's built in this movie as well. Because I feel like it lends itself more to, I guess if now if we're comparing this to the more recent musical version, the, I like the the way that it deals with magical realism more in this than yeah. in the newer one. When you when I saw Matilda as a kid, it felt possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In a in a similar way to how I don't know if you experienced this, but reading the first couple of Harry Potter books when I was really young, it felt possible. Mm. Right, it felt like this isn't so fantastical. It's grounded in our real world, and it can happen to me too. Which, I mean, it's sad then when you're like, oh, I don't have telekinetic powers. <laughs> yeah. You know, and then you get older and you see Carrie and you're like, maybe that's a good thing. Um, but also, if there's something across the room you need, you just want to be like, Accio. Accio, this thing. <laughs> um, yeah, I remember feeling that this film was so real. Yeah. It's genuinely scary. Yeah, it has while having like some truly funny moments throughout that still make us laugh. It has, it has moments that truly got under my skin as a kid. Like there's some really suspect, like really well done suspenseful sequences. And then you have moments that just like catch you off guard and are, are, are like, what much too good for children. Stop. And, and things that make you feel really gross, like <laughs> the cake. Yeah. Which Two years ago, my the sister that I unwrapped Matilda with, Britt, she makes birthday cakes for everyone for their birthdays. And she was like, this year you don't get to pick what flavor you're getting because I have an idea. I'm not going to tell you what it is. She made the cake from Matilda. It was huge. Yeah. She put it on like, she made, like cut a huge cardboard thing and then wrapped it in silver, mm. like in tinfoil to like look like the big silver platter it comes out on. Mm-hmm. And it looked so much like the cake from Matilda. Yeah. We'll post photos of it on our Instagram and we'll link to that in the show notes as well as to our ghost tattoos. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it was delicious. Oh, yeah. It but was, it's funny to get that cake because the scene is kind of gross. It, it's gross, <laughs> but also simultaneously it's like that cake does look delicious. It does look delicious, but not if you have to. I mean, my sister didn't make me eat the whole thing in front of everybody, so... <laughs> That would have been that would have taken it to another level. That'd have been that'd have been good. You can do it, Brucey. <laughs> yeah. Um, something I really, really like about this movie and why I think it works so well for me is that the adult characters, they're so big and they chew up so much of the scenery. But what I feel that that does is beautifully carve out the quiet and contemplative and inspiring space for the character of Matilda. Mm-hmm. And for her to really shine through, even in moments where there isn't necessarily dialogue. Like watching little Matilda grow up in this is both so beautiful, but also so sad. Great use of um, 
dissolve. Yeah. I was thinking when we were watching it that that would be a good clip to show a film studies 10 class because the dissolve can be so cheesy. Mm -hmm. But I feel like it's used really effectively in like the montage of her growing up. Well, and it's it's made even more effective by this piece of music that is kind of the theme of the movie that still makes me feel so emotional. It's a sorrowful hope kind of score. Truly, because it's this singular piece of music, but depending on the tempo they choose to play it, it can really fuck me up. (laughs) It can be like really hopeful and kind of uh, filled with childlike wonder, but then also just completely obliterating and just down in the dumps. So sad. Wish everything was better and happier. <laughs> and it's, it's beautiful. I didn't, I didn't write down who the, uh, the composer was, but whoever it was, you're still getting me to this day. This is a movie that you and I quote a lot in our house mm-hmm. in various different ways. I mean, much too good for children is probably like the most quoted, but <laughs> Uh, I also love that this movie thinks reading is good Mm -hmm. because reading is good. Reading is important. Fundamental. Reading is fundamental. Um, And I think, so the trench bull is very scary, very, very upsetting. But what makes the movie hopeful is that for as scary as the trench bull is, Miss Honey is as warm and kind and light as that like opposing force to that oppression and darkness and meanness well she is the bee's knees well as as a kid watching this you're introduced to the wormwoods who are so despicable and you're like fuck this can't get any worse and then then you meet the trunchbull you meet the trunchbull and you're like jesus christ because the wormwoods are neglectful but for the most part they just let matilda do what she wants whereas the trunchbull is like actively harmful. I feel like I'm getting a moment of deja vu because perhaps I said this exact same thing when we covered the musical. Yeah, it's, it, I mean, Trunchbull's Trunchbull. I mean, one of the most despicable characters either. But so you're hit with uh, the Wormwoods and then you're hit with the Trunchbull, but then you get to Miss Honey and you're like, oh, there is <laughs> there is light in this world. There is goodness. Or, and lavender. I was going to say, or even like when she meets Lavender and I, I love that she's meeting all of these other kids that seem like, they could be in different grades, but they just all connect. Well, like to to take this to a a different kind of reading of the movie, I do think that this movie and and therefore, I mean, I, I never really read the book. I was so smart, I skipped right past kids' books into adult books, so I never really did the kids' chapter books. Whoa, I know, <laughs> brag. <laughs> um, but this movie to me is so much about like what someone who's experiencing injustice can do and like where that power lies. And this movie fundamentally shows that the power lies in collective activism. It (laughs) it takes like a person who's willing to speak up first, but she doesn't get where she's going without the other kid. Like, especially in that cake scene. Yes. Matilda says you can do it, Brucey, but that doesn't do it for him. It's not until other people are like, she's saying something, I'll say something too. And you see it with like the way that older girl gives them the warning in the yards that they don't get in trouble. And you see it at the end of the movie when like the kids are all in the classroom together. So through the kids, you see that like you need collective camaraderie. But then through Miss Honey, you see that you need like coalition and alliance from people who aren't in your oppressed group. Mm -hmm. And I mean, in the case of Miss Honey, she once was, 
but she no longer is, but she can use her privilege and her power as an adult to help these people. And then you can take that framework and apply that to thinking about marginalized groups and injustice now. So you, and then like the importance of allyship. Mm. I don't know. I actually think that this is a pretty deep movie personally, personally. Totally. And like, it's, it is just like a microcosm of shit that goes on in the world and, and exaggerated in some points, but like you can draw so many lines. But through the idea of telekinesis, like the, the movie is quite literally saying like you have power and you can use it. And I love that moment in the movie when, when a person is bad, Mm -hmm. teaches Matilda that like injustice shouldn't go unpunished anywhere. Mm -hmm. And then you get like, like the, pranks she pulls off in this yeah really good excellent stuff. excellent it's so funny too because anytime i've rewatched this as an adult i'm like oh it feels like the telekinesis and like the that magical part of the magical realism it doesn't actually play a big role like i feel like it doesn't come in until like pretty late in the movie and there's not a ton of it but it is it's used so sparingly that it's impactful whenever it is used totally and it's really powerful the choices Matilda makes once she has kind of harnessed the power. But I love that the movie doesn't just go like, okay, we're in magic world now. It's yeah. it it still retains the realism and is really rooted in our characters and these and these people. It's it's really good. It's really beautiful. <laughs> it's really really good. And I mean, I didn't know this until recently that. Mara Wilson's mom passed away from cancer like shortly after she finished filming before the film came out. Um, and she wrote a biography that I haven't read, like uh, autobiography. And she talked about how like Danny DeVita and Danny DeVita, <laughs> Danny DeVito and Rhea Perlman were so kind and caring to her through the entire process, but especially when her mom was ill and in the hospital. Mm. Um, and she had always been sad that her mom hadn't seen this finished movie because she was really proud of it. And then she found out later in life that Danny DeVito had actually like gone to the hospital and shown her mom a not completely finished, but as close to finished version of the film as they currently had because they knew that she was didn't have long to live. Ugh. God damn it. Hitting me right in the heart with that. That's like rad dad outside of the context of the film energy see that's what i mean like you wouldn't expect danny devito to be at the helm of this movie (laughs) but it seems like he approached it with so much sweetness and tenderness seems like it was some kind of a passion project for him like it Mm -hmm. means something to him um yeah and it's it's really good to hear a child actor say like I was taken care of on this on and off this set by the people involved in making it. She has talked about how like being a child actor like was not great, Mm -hmm. but in the context of this movie, she was treated really well. I mean, I haven't seen absolutely everything that she was in, but I feel like this is her, like this is her swan song. She's very cute in Mrs. Doubtfire, but she's, doing more in this (laughs) i also watched her i can't remember the name of the movie she was in some like magic witchy movie with martin short that i rented multiple times from from the probably not good from the blockbusters but i I can't remember what it was called anyway this movie's amazing it's so great we'll watch it forever i'm excited to eventually show it to our nibblings who 
hopefully care to see it because I think it's, I feel like it's timeless. How does it make you feel? Makes me feel nostalgically moved by the way power is used to write injustice. How does it make you feel? Heartwarmed then, now, and forever. All right. We went out to Metro Cinema to see the first in a trilogy that they are playing. Um, the 2002 crime drama thriller Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. It was directed by Park Chan-wook and written by Jong Young Lee, Jason Lee, Mi Young Lee, and Park Chan-wook as well. And it's based on the comic by Park Mi Young Chan. I don't know if I knew it was based on a comic. It's what IMDb says. And then I, in my brain, said, oh, go look that up. And then I didn't. Mm. It stars Sung King Ho as Dong Jin Park, Shin Hai Kien as Ryu, Beiduna as Yeonmi Cha, Lim Ji Yoon as Ryu. Ryu's sister, and Han Bo Bei as Yusun. Synopsis. A recently laid-off factory worker kidnaps his former boss's daughter, hoping to use the ransom money to pay for his sister's kidney transplant. What did you think of Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance? I was excited to see this in the theater because we are slowly making our way through Park Chan-wook's filmography. We've seen a lot of it, and we previously we previously covered the other two films that are in this trilogy. So we won't be covering them again, but... Would have been a great rad rap opportunity, but we've covered Lady Vengeance and Old Boy already. This is true. Um, this was pretty bleak. It was pretty bleak. This is the first of this Vengeance trilogy that he made. Is it Old Boy second? Yes. Okay. But this is the last one that we saw. Yes. So we saw Old Boy first. Who didn't see Old Boy first? Yeah. And then pretty recently watched Lady Vengeance and then watched this. After seeing all three of them, I have to say Old Boy's my least favorite. But I do like all of them. Yeah. They they all are doing something similar but differently. <laughs> and that is why they are a Vengeance trilogy. Um, I do think this is the bleakest of the three of them, although all of them are bleak and all of them are definitely looking at the kind of consequences of pursuing vengeance you might get the vengeance that you wanted but at what cost yeah um they all reiterate just how mucky of a path revenge and vengeance is absolutely this was in 35 millimeter yeah and it was interesting because we've often seen 35 millimeter at metro of like really old movies this felt more like nostalgic in a sense of what we would have seen when we were going to movies mm. in that it's not quite as aged. Yeah. Like it was pretty. It's not like we it, dug this print out of the basement of some old fart and it hasn't seen the light of <laughs> this day. This came from the archives. You know? <laughs> like it, it kind of just felt like if we'd been watching it, not restored on yeah. digital, you right. know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, other than like a couple moments, but that was interesting to mm-hmm. just see a 35 millimeter that didn't necessarily constantly feel like you were watching 35 millimeter. I'd say the other experience was paprika with that. Oh, fair. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's a good, uh, good point. This of the three vengeance movies, I actually think I cared about the characters the most in this. Like I liked mm. the characters as people the most. Um, Lady Vengeance, I was really compelled by her story, but I didn't necessarily like her. Yeah. Where and then in Old Boy, you're like, what? Who even is this guy? And he's kind of unlikable. But mm-hmm. in this, I was like, I like Ryu. Like mm-hmm. I understand his quest 
to me seems the most understandable. Mm. Yeah. And, and more of a like things go wrong, but the intentions weren't wrong, but the actions were misguided. Yeah. Like I kind of, like I kind of wrote down here, like our main characters in this, they aren't unabashedly lovable, but they're complicated and there are aspects to each of them that you understand and you can relate with possibly. And that's what makes you invested. Yeah. And unlike Lady Vengeance and Old Boy, where vengeance is so prevalent from the very beginning, this film, a lot of the movie is like people trying their best. Mm -hmm. And the like consumption by vengeance doesn't really happen until further into the movie. Yeah. Which is really interesting. And I think is the first in the trilogy, it makes sense to start there. This one, I also think, though, has the most intense violence of all of them and some of the saddest imagery I've seen on screen and some of like for me the things that get me the most and make me the most squeamish yeah there's some nasty stuff but there's also just like nasty stuff from like there's there's a little nugget character that we 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 had a very like personal connection with just because of some of our nibblings that we have in our life. And it's just like, we start kind of just placing them in this scenario and we're like, Oh no. Mm -hmm. And that also stirs just like this yucky pluckiness inside. And it, something that didn't really help is that, I don't know. I think my brain went out to lunch the day that we went and saw this. Because I mucked up some character stuff. <laughs> you were confusing two characters thinking they were the same person, which made you think that the movie was going back and forth in time. Yeah. And it's not. But like, it, it's so weird because that's such a big miss. <laughs> yet, <laughs> it's a huge miss. Yet I was still able to follow the movie. Like, I don't feel like I lost anything. Like talking. It, I do, but. Like talking it out. I'm just like, I just rerouted all of those connections in my brain. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I don't feel like I've, I've missed any points or I missed any like big developments that happened throughout the film. But it, it, it was interesting nonetheless that my I mean, brain you were was just a little like, confused because you're like, what was going on with this like character having like different haircuts? And I'm like, those are two different people. Okay. <laughs> um, we both talked about how in seeing this and I think of Park Chan-wook's work we really liked Thirst when we had our friend Cassandra on and she picked that as her mystery pick um, and we've quite liked all three of the Vengeance movies but we weren't as sold on Handmaiden or Decision to Leave didn't dislike them but weren't like as enamored with them as other people are mm-hmm. and have we seen anything else by him? Nothing that comes to mind right off the top. Um, But now that we've seen some of these other movies and really liked them, I want to revisit The Handmaiden and Decision to Leave, understanding kind of what his style is and what he tends to explore. Mm -hmm. This movie, I mean, it's an earlier film of his. Not the earliest, but an earlier one. It was not well received. It got like shit all over for being like ultra violent with nothing to say and 
all that kind of stuff. Um, what? Which I'm like, and, it, and Quentin Tarantino. I was going to say, it, I feel like this has more to say than Kill Bill has to say. I also agree. And they're both about vengeance. Yeah. This isn't stylized in that way. I, Old Boy has a little bit more stylization. Not, not in a Kill Bill way, but... But this mo- movie to me is so tragic. Oh, like absolutely. Shakespearean levels of tragic. Won't be the first, won't be the last time I say <laughs> that uh, this episode, but I, this movie just made me really sad. Oh yeah. Absolutely. I feel that way at the kind of end of all of the vengeance movies where I'm just like bummed out. Well, and he's really good at that. Like he's really good at not squeaky clean characters, but you're invested in them. And there's some real nasty shit that happens. And but like also nasty shit that isn't out of the realm of humanity. And you the kind of thing that you see people do every day. And he's really good with Icky. Mm-hmm. And he's really good with just sorrow and mm-hmm. pain and loss and what people choose to do with that pain and loss. Yeah, I think this movie has something to say. It's tragic that Warner Brothers owns the rights to a remake because we all know how the remake of old boy went (laughs) not least of which my mother (laughs) yes who hated it accidentally watched it um couple interesting things this was the first film ever to have a sex scene with sign language in it Mm. cool Mm -hmm. um and in this original movie park chanwick wanted to do the like full color that slowly saturates to black and white. He didn't get to do it until he, he didn't have, vengeance. he didn't have the budget for it. Like he mm. just didn't have the ability to do that at the time, but then he, he did it later for lady vengeance. So mm. it's something that he, it, I would be surprised if at some point they don't re-release all three of them in like a package where mm. all three of them fade. Like a director's, final cut of all three three of them yeah Yeah. i'd watch it i will revisit all three of these semi-often yeah but they're intense Mm -hmm. they're all very 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 violent and i actually think this one was the most upsetting in its violence to me yeah but i do think they have something to say how did sympathy for mr vengeance make you feel discomforted yet invested how to make you feel Get it by how from the start of this trilogy, Park Chan-wook solidifies the painful futility of vengeance. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. 
Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Okay, we went back out Metro Cinema to see the 1984 biography, drama, music film, Amadeus. It was directed by Milos Forman, and the original stage play was written by Peter Schaefer. Then the screenplay was written by Peter Schaefer, and an uncredited writer was uh, Zdenek Mahler. It stars, so there's some pee pee poo poo guys in this, one of which being F. Murray Abraham as Antonio Soleri, Tom Hulse as Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, Elizabeth Barrage as Constance Mozart, and Roy Dotrice as Leopold Mozart. Synopsis. The life, success, and troubles of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, as told by Antonio Salieri, the con- contemporaneous composer who was deeply jealous of Mozart's talent and claimed to have murdered him. What do you think of Amadeus? Now this is so Shakespearean. <laughs> Very much. <laughs> um, okay. I never would have watched this at home, I don't think. You apparently have thought about it. I, I've, I've wanted to... Pick it a few times. I've been wanting to watch it for a while, but it wasn't streaming anywhere, and it's it was long as heck before we even get to a director's cut of it, which is what we saw in the in and the theater. got duped by because Metro Cinema, we love you, but they posted the OG runtime on their listing for this movie, not the director's cut runtime. So I thought it was going to end twenty minutes earlier. And I was in the middle of marking diploma exams for seven days straight this week and an extra 20 minutes did hurt me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, when is this movie going to end? And I, not to brag, but I have a really good concept of time. Like yeah. often, well, neither of us will have our phones on us and we'll be downstairs playing video games, watching YouTube videos, watching a movie. And then after it's all done, you'll be like, Do you know what time it is? And I'm like, well, no, but I think it's around this time. And I'm almost always right. Yeah, uh, as somebody who is not good with time management, you are, by comparison, very good with time management. Which means that I felt a little discombobulated in this movie at a certain point because I was like, it feels like it should be over. Not because the movie feels like it should be over, but my brain is like, we have passed the 161 minute mark. (laughs) Even if I don't actively realize that's what's happening in my brain, I think I was like, why is this still going on? Even I felt that because like you're like, it's two hours, 40 minutes or whatever. And- it got to a point where I'm like, this feels long. There's too many notes. This happened to us recently. We were rewatching Twin Peaks and we were watching the first episode of season two. And at a certain point, I'm like, is this longer than a regular episode? Because it feels like it's not ending. Yeah. And we pressed pause and checked and it was an hour and a half. Uh, yeah, it was double <laughs> the length of a regular episode. So my brain understands time so well. At least one of us has at a brain that does that. Um. That being said, although I probably wouldn't have picked this at home, I am glad to have seen it. I thought it was really funny. Yeah. I like so the feeling that I got when we when we left the theater is that I so appreciate a movie like this that is a biopic for all intents and purposes, but it's not. Yeah. But it paves the way tonally for movies like Poor Things. Like I got so many Poor Things vibes because it is it has a bizarre sense of humor and an absurd sense of humor. And 
it does have dark themes, but it also has it uses lightness to highlight and accent some of those dark themes. Yeah, it's you know, and I I also made the the connection to like I feel like Sofia Coppola had to have been influenced yeah. when she made Marie Antoinette. Mm-hmm. But I like that this film is like, and the original stage play, because it's originally a play, mm-hmm. was like, we don't really care about the truth. Like in real life, Solari was married with many kids. There's no, I think, particular evidence that there was a rivalry between them. He definitely never claimed to have murdered Mozart. But there are, this movie's inspired by the like, key things that are known about Mozart's life. Mm -hmm. But then the people who like Schaefer, who wrote the original play and, and Milos Forman, who's directing this are kind of like, but we're just going to take that to craft a story we're interested in about themes of jealousy. I love that. I do too, because I think I've said this on the show a million times. You're never going to get a real truth about Mozart. It's too long ago. We don't know. And even if it wasn't too long ago, like conflicting perspectives, biases about what you're trying to present the fundamental changing of a story by turning it into film it's never going to be accurate anyway i do feel that the way tom hulse portrays mozart's laugh is 100 percent historically accurate oh gotta be he is magnetic in this he's so good like the only i don't even know who that guy is i only knew him as one of the the siblings in parenthood the film and is he magnetic in that too? No, he's kind of like the shit stain brother that is just like comes back only when he needs money. Mm. But the only thing I knew about this movie was the gif that I have definitely sent of like him conducting and like just like flailing about. It's so goofy and silly and I love it so much. But like that's literally all I knew about this movie. I did I had no idea what the plot was and what it was covering. So it's refreshing when it is a quote unquote biopic. But they're just like, well, we're going to use these people. We're going to use these characters, but we're, we're going to exaggerate the truth yeah. to make a compelling movie for people. Yeah. I agree. And to look at like themes that are resonant for the writer and filmmaker yeah. through these characters rather than trying to be like, we're creating something that's just a Wikipedia page come to life. Cough, cough, Oppenheimer. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um. Yeah. I thought that this movie was pretty fun. I can't find any evidence I can't find any evidence of it but I am convinced that Bill Skarsgård is inspired by this portrayal of Mozart in his creation of his Pennywise yeah I'm convinced if not consciously subconsciously Subconsciously, like at some point he watched this movie and was like that's it (laughs) I have to say I didn't know that Mozart was an opera guy I thought he was just a piano guy Mm. but is he like I also don't know, and I did not look this up afterward, but like, is he both? Like, did he compose classical music, but also would compose these plays? I think so. I think so. Um, I I only did classical piano for a while, but I've always been a bit more partial to Beethoven. You know. Um, Plus, Homeboy was deaf, so that's really impressive. (laughs) Not his whole life. Really? Don't think so. He wasn't born deaf? Don't think so. When he was 28, he started to lose his hearing. Fuck. He was deaf by the age of 44. Jesus. Like, just out of nowhere, he started losing his hearing. I don't know. Fuck. I'm not a Beethoven biographer. <laughs> Beethoven biographer. <laughs> um. Okay, here's an interesting fact. The original stage play, Tim Curry, 
played Mozart. Perfect. And then later on, Mark Hamill. I like that connection. We go straight back to Pennywise. <laughs> we do. Did you hear my second one? Say it again. Mark Hamill? Mark Hamill. And he, I think he was like the last person before they made this movie who had played Mozart in the stage production. And they considered him for the film, but they felt like it would be too distracting because of the Luke Skywalker of it all. That sucks. Yeah, it does. But I, I mean, I think Tom Hulse rocks Crushes it. it. Oh, yeah. Um, another interesting fact about this. Mm-hmm. We weren't alive in 1984 when the Oscars would have been on. Mm-hmm. This was a like another having an older person read the Oscars and problems happen. No way. Yeah. So who fucked it up this time? I, I don't have the name of who fucked it up. I didn't write that down. But what happened was they just announced the winner before they even listed the nominees. So it was just like, and Amadeus is the winner. And then like people were like, uh, and then someone had to come up and like confirm that. And then, um, the people who went up to like read or to give the speech listed the winners or the nominees then. That's classy. That's good. That is, that is good. So in terms of things it won, it won best picture. It won best picture, best director. F. Marie Abraham won best actor. Tom Hulse was nominated in the same category and didn't win. Oh shit. I personally would have flipped it. It won Best Adapted Screenplay. Just on that too, I think I would have put F. Murray Abraham in supporting. Yeah. Nah, I don't know. But anyway, keep it going. It won Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Art Direction, Best Costume Design, Best Makeup, and Best Sound. And then it was nominated for Best Cinematography and Best Editing and didn't win those. Hmm. But it won a lot. I mean, the production... It's it incredible. It is amazing. This movie is a feat. I really, really enjoyed watching it. It's not top 250 good to me, mm-hmm. but it is good. It's yeah. worth seeing once. I, I wouldn't want, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm not saying I would never watch it again, but I don't foresee when I would. Yeah. If I, that makes sense. No, I'm with you. If this is the one time we watch Amadeus and let Amadeus rock me, I'm happy we saw it the way that we did, even though we were duped by the runtime. <laughs> Agreed. How did it make you feel? It made me feel engaged at the use of historical figures to inspire a resonant narrative. Mm-hmm. How did it make you feel? This seems kind of cold, but it, I am also saying this because it's celebratory of happy to check, happy to have checked another big one off the watch list. Okay, we're ending in a really heavy and intense place. Um, this is the last 2023 movie we were trying to see before we post our top movies of 2023, which we should be posting on our Instagram this week. Unfortunately, because we live in a place where they don't believe there's a big enough cinema audience, we sometimes don't get movies for months after they've been released in places like LA, New York, even Toronto, Vancouver. Um, and there was a, hand, a couple movies that we were like, we think they're going to be really, really good and we don't want to leave them off the list. So we'll therefore be releasing our top movies of 2023 in February rather rather than yeah. in January. I think there's like a couple stragglers still to come, but like we can't put off this list until no. like June. So watch out for that this week. Follow us at baddad.raddad on Instagram. So we saw the 2023 drama history war movie, The Zone of Interest. It was directed and written by Jonathan Glazer, and it was based on the book by Martin Amis. It stars Sandra Hewler as Hedwig Haas and Christian Friedel as Rudolf Haas, and I didn't put anybody else. 
The synopsis for this one is the commandant of Auschwitz, Rudolf Haas, and his wife Hedwig, I guess it would be Hedwig, strive to build a dream life for their family in a house and garden next to the camp. Makes it sound a lot more sanitary than the film is. What did you think of The Zone of Interest? I was looking forward to this in a really big way. I heard a ton of praise for it from a lot of people that I follow. I was I was excited when it when it finally came. And while we were watching the movie, I mean it it totally consumes you and and totally draws you in. And throughout through the process of watching this movie, I reached a point where I kind of almost experienced some frustration and I'm, I, I'm asking myself, I'm like, who the fuck is this movie for? And then this really rare thing happened where I'm asking this question and then I got confronted with the answer to that question by the end of the film. And that doesn't happen very often mm-hmm. when you're watching a movie is that the thing that you're asking that you wouldn't expect it to answer that you're kind of mad at it and being like, you're yeah. a good movie, but this is fucked. Yeah. <laughs> and then it turn it kind of turns it back on you. And I think that honestly, the ending is just what took this movie to the next level for me and makes it, makes it a masterpiece. Yeah. This movie is another one. So it's slow. Oh yeah. And not, I, I say this, not, actually but just in a superficial way nothing happens of course everything happens yeah and we like movies like that so take the subject matter and the history out of it Mm -hmm. it's got a similar pacing to something like a ghost story yeah there's lots of people who aren't gonna like that like i've been talking with some colleagues about how i think this would be a really incredible film study movie in a high school classroom but i would be pretty devastated if students said that was boring which i think many of them would and i think probably many people have adults have and i'm like boring do you know what were you listening to what was happening yeah um so it is slow because i think if like you like you're saying like if you stripped out like the historical aspect of it it kind of plays like a tarkovsky a little bit sure yeah yeah i mean i don't feel like i know enough tarkovsky to to confirm but it is it feels slow cinema for sure. Yeah. It's only an hour and 45 minutes, which like most history drama war movies are a lot longer than that. Mm-hmm. But it's, I feel like this says so much more with less. A hundred percent. It's heavy. It's incredibly heavy experience. You could feel the he- heaviness in the theater. And this, you and I actually haven't talked about this, but this is the, most people I've seen sit through the credits and most of them silently mm-hmm. in a long time. That's a good point. A lot of people, and I don't think they were expecting an end credit scene. <sighs> we're just sitting. Yeah. So it's a heavy movie. And I think people should really think about that as they go and see it. Not it's heavy. So don't go see it. Just be aware of that when you go see it. I took a class in university by a professor that I really liked. Um, and it was a 400 level class. It was in my second last or last year of my first degree. It was called gender and genocide. What a name. Mm-hmm. It was a heavy class. Um, the professor who taught that class, her research, she's a, she's German is 
specifically focused on Ravensbrück, the women's the women's camp um, in World War II. And we were thinking a lot about like collective memory, post memory, and then this concept of ethical remembrance. Like how do you remember in an ethical way? And that's always stuck with me. And that was, it wasn't the only thing we looked at in that course, but it's what I based my, my big paper in that class on where I, I analyzed two episodes of American Horror Story, but in a very thoughtful way, thinking about how media attends to ethical remembrance, right? Like I have some problems with Schindler's List from an ethical standpoint, mm-hmm. not least to mention they're speaking English in it, right? Yeah. This film feels very intentional in the way that it asks its viewer to bear witness to atrocity. Yeah. hundred percent. Without telegraphing for them exactly how they should feel without allowing for them to feel good by the end of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and in a way, and you've alluded to this, but we won't talk about the specifics that by the end of the film even asks the viewer, why did you watch this? And if the viewer is reflective and takes those questions with them, I would hope would make them say, and what am I doing in these contemporary moments of atrocity, mm-hmm. which are both far away, like the Palestinian genocide and close, like for us in Edmonton, the recent encampment sweeps. Mm-hmm. Those are both moments that we are being asked to bear witness to. And what are we doing with that? Right. So I, from that point of view, because I do have really mucky feelings about the ethics of representing atrocity past and present and who is representing it and how are they representing it? And this is where I didn't feel great about Oppenheimer or Killers of the Flower Moon from those perspectives. Yeah. Craft aside, I didn't feel good about it. Yeah. Same. This film I felt differently about and, and about how it connects to now. Yes. I do think killers of the flower moon tries a little bit more to connect with now than Oppenheimer does. Yeah. Especially with an ethical way, especially what it's, what it does at the, at the end, at the end, it doesn't absolve it for me of some of the things I take issue with in it. Yeah. But I think it's trying more to be mindful of that but this film the more you and I read about it after and the longer it kind of resonated within us and just kept weighing like a lead ball that was getting heavier and heavier Mm -hmm. the more we saw it as masterful it's hard to say you liked this movie but I think it's more saying that it is a very important masterfully crafted piece of art yeah, I I agree with you. I, I I think that this movie does a really great job of making its audience sit and kind of think. Like I love like it it kicks off the film by just making you sit in darkness and it uses its it has such a sparing sparingly used score. I think that non-diegetic music shows up 3 times. Yeah, and Jonathan Glazer refers to those three times as sound collage rather than score. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. But like the movie kicks off and you're just sitting in the dark listening to this music. Like it kind of felt like when we saw 2001 mm. and during the intermission, it was just a black screen with the score playing over top of it. That's intentional. Like you're meant to sit through it. So immediately it's like kind of getting you into this 
you already kind of, at least us, knew going into this that we were going to be discomforted by the the subject matter. But it kicks off that way. And then to what you said, by the time we get to the end, the music is so overwhelming. And then what you just saw is also overwhelming in its own way. I love that the movie just wants you to sit in it. And it, and it, it almost demands that you do that. Yeah, I mean, there's so much intentionality in it. And when we read that this was a 10-year-long process for Jonathan Glazer, who is a UK filmmaker, but he is Jewish, and who, I, I looked this up, he hasn't been incredibly outspoken about the Palestinian genocide, but he has acknowledged it. And he has specifically said that like it is not lost on him how this film is applicable to now. Mm-hmm in a way that shows his um, nuanced understanding of the way that you can apply the questions this film's ask, this film asks of its viewers to the way people are responding to the violence in Palestine, mm-hmm. um, which I'm glad to hear. Yeah. I didn't need another Eli Roth experience well, it's, in this moment. Well, and like you kind of already alluded to is like, as we left the theater, came home, started reading more about the background of this film and learning that it was this passion project. Like this is why we haven't heard or seen anything from Jonathan Glazer for so long is because he's been working on this for 10 years and thoughtfully. And also that thoughtfulness extended out to the crew that he was surrounding himself with to create this film because he didn't want to just, he didn't want to make a World War II movie and Mm -hmm. do it thoughtlessly and have it be some overwrought piece that needs to have some big grandiose sweeping notion at the end of it. And in real time, you could almost watch my rating go up and up and up on on Letterboxd (laughs) as I learned more and more about this movie. It is really complicated. I was reading, I haven't read as much as I would like to read on it because I've been busy marking provincial diplomas. Um, but Glazer's talked about how growing up, like the specter of the Holocaust kind of haunted his family, but nobody talked about it. Mm. And when he started making this film, his dad's, this was what his dad said to him. His dad said, why are you digging it up? Let it rot. And he said, I can't, Like, it's not gone. I can't. Well, and that's like such, like, I've totally heard that from so many people that have, either are survivors of the Holocaust or have been, have close ties to people like that where they, they just don't want to acknowledge it. They don't want to talk about it. It was one of the lowest points of humanity. Well, I can't imagine though, then like how hard that would be to make this. Oh, absolutely. As, as especially like hearing something that like that, it's almost visceral mm-hmm. what his dad says. And this, you know, as a Jewish man, this must've been a painful experience to make this movie. And it sounds like there was a lot of care in that regard like um i thought it was really interesting to learn that sandra hewler had said she would never play a nazi but then when she spoke to jonathan glazer she said that she felt like they shared the same concerns about how to portray a nazi um and and in the end she obviously agreed to it so I've read that there was years of research that went into this, Mm -hmm. um, looking at archives, testimonies, speaking to people who are still alive. They recreated the house. They filmed 
on location, which must have been so heavy. There was a 600-page document made by sound designer Johnny Byrne to create the realism of the sound design in this, including real archival documents of events that happened at Auschwitz, using testimonies to ensure that what was being heard was likely what you would have heard, and a map of the camp a map of the camp to make sure that there was an accuracy of sound of like the distance of sound, the reverberation of sound, that that would be accurate. So that's incredible. If this doesn't win sound design, that's a travesty. Cause honestly the, the sound design in this is masterful. Like if you have an opportunity to see this in a theater or someplace, if you have a great sound system at home, like the most optimal conditions, because what everything everywhere all at once achieved last year with editing and, how amazing and incredible that was this is doing this this is this is accomplishing the same feat with sound design i agree i've i've had a couple people say like oh i I, i'm interested in that and i said if you can see it in the theater see it in the theater um and then of course if you've already as you've already mentioned that like intentional lack of score other than like the beginning the end and this one point in the middle with sound collage rather than score Mm -hmm. and even though there was a score made for the film glazer decided in the end not to use it because he felt like it would esthetize the Holocaust. And he said he refused to sweeten or dramatize the events by using a score. And it's so smart, which is the opposite of Schindler's list. Right. And I feel like that is the, that is such a mark of a, of a great director of seeing like we, it was similar with some things I've been reading recently about like Yorgos uh, with poor things is that you do something, you try it, you see how it fits. And then, you're not afraid to cut and you're not afraid to edit mm-hmm. and you're, you're not so precious about everything. You want to do what's right for the story and for the tone. And allow that to like unfold and reveal itself to you. I mean, even thinking about what we talked about with David Lowry and being like, okay, I had, he had to re- reevaluate what that ghost imagery was going to look like on screen once they really got there yeah. right? and not being like, well, this I'm going to try and make it the way I originally envisioned it. Be like, I see something new unfolding before me as we create this different thing. Yeah. And yeah, like I I don't need in the case of this movie, I don't need a score to handhold me to tell me how to feel. I already feel the way I feel and I I don't think anything is going to change that. And so he uses that sound design. Glazer has said that the sound that you hear in the movie is quote, the other film, arguably the film. Mm -hmm. And we've been talking about, I mentioned in my Letterboxd review, so the intentionality of the lack of score, the sound design, the static cameras, the use of natural lighting, um, but then something that you had mentioned, which was how low the subtitles fit on the screen, and somebody who doesn't follow me was just like, interesting, why, why do you think that is? Like, like, you're right, now that you say that, I noticed that the subtitles sit so low on the screen, but what do you think the intention of that is? And so I got to thinking about it, and this is, I'm not saying that I am the definitive voice on it, but what I said and tell me what you think of this was I'm really interested in what this film has to say about proximity to atrocity, both in the very literal way of how proximate the hosses were, particularly the wife and children, Mm -hmm. but also how we as people who are not experiencing atrocity, both past and present, the proximity we take to it. Mm. Now the subtitles sitting that low on the screen, particularly in a wide shot, when you can see beyond the wall, force you to look away from what is beyond the wall mm. 
to comprehend the dialogue of the family. Which, as film viewers, it is natural for us, like, to feel like that's what we've been trained to do as viewers, is to read the dialogue. But in order to re- read the dialogue, we must look away. It's yeah. forcing us to look away. And what would it mean to say, actually, I don't care what you're saying. I'm going to look beyond the wall. Mm. I'm going to miss what you're saying so that I can witness what's beyond the wall. That's so interesting. I don't know. I don't know if that was the intention, but, but, but that's a reading I have of it. But I, I really like that reading because not only are the subtitles really low, like just hugging the bottom of the screen. They only appear one line at a time. They're never the which means you have the to dialogue's wait. never line so break. You can't read it quickly and then look back up. You have to wait. And it, it, some of it goes by really fast. So you have to be paying attention. You have to keep your eye focused on the bottom of the screen. And like, which which then forces the viewer to ignore the top of the screen. Well, and something interesting happened. And I know that this is just a this is the fault of the theater in the way the theater is designed. But as soon as speaking started and subtitles started appearing, saw so many people shift in their seat because they had to move up to avoid like kind of the... Oh, because they have these bars. Yeah. yeah, like these kind of dividers between each of the rows that would be impeding the view of the subtitles for some people, which I, if that, I'd be so frustrated if that were the case for us. But the shift for like actually people like physically moving so that they could read the subtitles. And then... Yeah, I, I find that so powerful is that there is just some of the worst of the worst that you can imagine happening on screen and being the focal point. But we're all kind of taking our gaze down to like the lowest point on the screen. There's this way that through that the film is engaging in this like this was the language I used in my paper on American Horror Story when I was in that gender and genocide class. There's this forcing of a meta reflection on the viewer's own proximity to atrocity on the viewer's own watching of a recreation of atrocity and on the atrocity itself. Like those three things are happening at the same time in conversation with each other. That's incredibly complex. Yeah. (laughs) Send me back to grad school um, so I can write a paper on it, but that's all happening at once in a way that like I didn't, it's days later that I'm starting to be able to say, I think this is what's going on. And even when you think about it that way too, as your eyes are brought to the bottom of the screen, how many of us can hold the dialogue and what we're hearing in our brain at the same time? Yeah, We have to focus on one thing. Now I'd be curious what it's like for a German speaking audience, if that's Mm. a different experience, but maybe that's intentional. The Germans don't have to German or the Germans, German speaking audiences don't have to look at the bottom of the screen. So you better look beyond the screen. You better look at the top of the screen. Yeah. Like maybe there's an intentionality in that too. Yeah. Uh, I, I wouldn't put it past the filmmakers on that. Like, yeah, just putting them so like, we're so close to just not looking at the screen. Like it, it's it, again, this movie feels confrontational of its audience in a thought provoking and thoughtful way. Cause it's like, you're so close to just not looking then like, why, why are you even looking at well, there's all? There's a, there's a series of poems that I teach in my 30 dash one class. I just started teaching them last year. Um, and in one of them, there's a photo conceivably, at least as the way that the poet writes, they're suggesting that the photo is of their father as a child sitting on Hitler's knee. 
And the series of poems are about how this daughter of a German immigrant doesn't know if he was a Hitler youth, doesn't know what he felt about the actions of his people um, because he never talked about it. And in the second poem, there's this really intense, breathless section. And the poem is on the same page. Like the left, the left page is the photo and the right page is the poem. And it just says, look away, look away, look away, don't look away, look away, look away, don't look away, look away, look away, don't. And then it says, see a Nazi, see a Nazi, see a Nazi, don't see a Nazi, see a Nazi, don't see a Nazi. And depending on how you read it, it's either look away or don't look away. It's either see a Nazi or don't see a Nazi. And it feels like this this film is doing something similar with where it's putting the subtitling. Mm. With the question of, are you looking or are you looking away? Are you listening or are you paying attention to this other thing? Like, what is your brain choosing to focus on? Mm-hmm. Your eye, your ears, what are they focusing on? And how does that ask the viewer to think about both past and present, what we look away from and what we look at, what we hear and what we block out? And then what we do with that. Mm-hmm. And the film doesn't tell us what we should or shouldn't do with that. Mm-hmm. That's left for you to think about. And I mean, that's just, it's just masterful. Yeah. Well, and to you kind of spoke to it a little bit, the camera work here is it seems like it would have been so difficult to achieve because every shot save for a couple are all static shots. And it's just, we're not following characters Well, we are, but in the sense of just like from one camera to another camera to another camera. So it's multiple setups to get these, all these shots and it can be very disorienting. Jonathan Glazer has taught, he's said kind of glibly that it's like big brother Nazis yeah that like it evokes that kind of reality tv big brother style of shooting something where you're cutting Mm -hmm. from camera to camera to camera um and i've read a lot of people talking about how they felt particularly impacted by that use of static shot in the scene where rudolph is turning off the lights Mm -hmm. and this like it creates this like methodical feeling and this like staccato coldness in the film but also like gives him so much power yes I feel yeah yeah it's really compelling and i i'm really interested in how the book that this is inspired by is really not what this film is like the book is a fictionalization that changes the names of the haas family who jonathan glazer says no we're gonna name them mm-hmm. we're gonna recreate their real house we're going to use witness testimony. We're going to speak to people who knew them, right? Who were, we're going to read testimony from people who lived in the house, were employed in the house. And the original book is about like a fictional love triangle. Mm. I mean, I, I haven't read the book. I'm sure that there's a lot in it that inspired the tone of this, but Glazer decides to do something very different with it, I think. Mm-hmm. And David Ehrlich, who we tend to not always, but, a lot of the time we we agree with. He said about this movie that the movie has a, quote, flattening evenness where the lack of drama becomes deeply sickening unto itself. Yeah. That intentional flatness, that intentional mundaneness, that what some people might watch and say boringness Mm -hmm. is the thing that is supposed to be sickening. And then as Glazer says, you've got the sound design of the real film in the background. Yeah. It's it. It's so impactful. It it continues to impact me 
every day, the more that I think about it, doing my notes, having this conversation, I, I just, the, the more that I sit with it, the more I learn about it and what went into it, the more I respect it. I love it. Um, it's nice to see like all the Oscar nominations came out earlier this week and it was now having seen this in retrospect, seeing this get so many nods is impressive. Uh, and to the question that we had, um, I looked it up. Jonathan Glazer doesn't speak German, but he has spoken about how he felt like it would be a disservice to the film to not have it be in German and to not have German actors playing these characters. Um, and I've, I, I've seen a couple people, some in a positive way and some in a negative way, evoke Michael Haneke mm. in this. And I totally get that, especially when I think funny games on like a meta textual level and what it's asking of the viewer. Mm -hmm. But Michael Haneke made a movie called The White Ribbon, um, which is about the Holocaust. And I read a review that said, like, what are you guys getting out of this that you didn't get out of The White Ribbon? And I'm like, well, I haven't seen The White Ribbon. So yeah, can't comment on that currently. But I don't think that because Haneke has done something that means that Glazer can't. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, so like, because I like this so much, I can't like come and see. Correct. You can only like one World War II movie. <laughs> and they're doing, they're doing different things, right? Like you and I have talked at length at how I've recently started teaching Night and how Night and zone, the Zone of Interest would be a really compelling comparative companion piece and how they both use tone and intentional stylistic te techniques within their mediums mm -hmm. to create similar thematic and social political messaging by depicting opposite sides of the wall. Yeah. Right? I, I was, I was thinking about night throughout this whole thing and just how perfect of a pairing these would be to, cause they are doing the same thing with the two sides of the same coin. And unfortunately, Ellie Wiesel did not share Jonathan Glazer's nuance about Palestinian genocide, but that text is powerful. Yeah. This film is, is masterful, important, super, super heavy, mm -hmm. but I think it's incredible. And like, let it, let it sit with you. Before you immediately rate it and review it. Yeah. How did the zone of interest make you feel? Consumed by its unrelenting bleakness and examination of its audience. How did it make you feel? It made me feel a heaviness and reflection on responses to violence and atrocity then and now. Well said. Let's get out of the Ooh. out of the bleakness. Let's get to some fun. Let's talk about the dads of the week. Okay, who did you name as bad dad? Um, I went Trenchbull. Oh yes. We've done that before. Yeah. I did. So I had somebody comment on my zone of interest review and say, so bad dad or rad dad? <laughs> yes. <laughs> bad dad. All yeah. of them. But I just felt like I don't want to go there. Yeah. We, they are. We can all Nazis agree. Nazis are the baddest of dads. Yeah. We can, we can say that. And this is also like a show called bad dad, rad dad. It's meant to be light and entertaining. <laughs> so tell me about the trench bowl while we acknowledge Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, the Trunchbull has some backward ass thinking. Um, I mean, she's abusive. True. <laughs> Cruel. Sociopathic. Mm -hmm. Honestly. And a probable murderer. 
Yep. <laughs> so like not great. Uh, and when it comes to being a parent, parental figure, she's not. Yeah. No, thank you. So I picked Antonio Soleri. Mm-hmm. I was thinking mostly about that idea of like envy and jealousy consuming you to the point where you have no humanity and kindness left in you. Yeah. I've read a couple reviews of Amadeus that talked specifically about there's a like transcription scene in the movie as being like one of the best scenes in cinema. And and I would agree. I think there's moments in Amadeus that are so incredible. Mm-hmm. It's just quite long. Um, and I just find like Soleri as this petty, dastardly person who like can't, you know, he's continually talking about how like, it wasn't fair that God did this and God gave this piece of shit, the gifts and me only the ability to recognize the gifts, like his entitlement and yeah. Yeah. And like, it makes him unable to have any sort of real human connection with anyone. And that would be a bad dad. Oh yeah. Like it's this unrelenting vindictive jealousy Yet he so admires him and is in awe of his work, but is also trying to sabotage it at every corner. What a prick house. I yeah. hate I hate him so much. Yep. Um these are two great choices. It's but your birthday. Let's go Salieri. Because also F. Murray Abraham is also a bad dad in real life. Yeah, apparently. Okay. Antonio Salieri? Don't, Don't be, be our dad. dad. Who's your rad dad? Miss Honey. Of course. I feel like Miss Honey was our rad dad. I feel like Trunchbull and Miss Honey were bad and rad dads yeah. last time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you just come on. Miss Honey's one of the like OG rad dads. Mm-hmm. She's caring. She's kind. But more than that, she allows Matilda and the other kids to access and witness their own power mm. and to see that in themselves. She gives them the tools to access recognize validate their own power and she also allows herself to learn from them Mm -hmm. and that's incredible yeah so she's supportive but not authoritative yeah and is like a resource and a person to go to i mean i i echo everything you said but yeah like her compassion and her sweetness towards her students and recognizing what they need like when she sees that Matilda is clearly a gifted intellectual person, she's like, oh, she need, she doesn't belong here. Like she, she should go somewhere that she can thrive. But on top of it all too, she's on her own grief journey that she's having to confront basically every day she goes to work. Mm-hmm. And that's not easy, but to still put out the kindness and work through it in her own way. Um, while we don't like this isn't Miss Honey's story, we can take from it that she is moving on to the next step of that journey and moving forward with her life and being able to do it in a positive way. She's great. I mean, she's one of the best. So Miss Honey. Be our dad. Be your dad. I have a daddy. Okay. Tell me. Uh, it's M from a ghost story. Rooney, yeah, I get that. Rooney Mara. I find her very babely, even when she's like totally housing that whole pie. That vegan pie. (laughs) (laughs) 
it's uh that's i feel like that scene is a true test of if the audience has the patience for the movie yeah if at the end of that scene you're like this is dumb just turn the movie off just turn off the movie but yeah uh she's uh she's make a babe so rooney mara i mean i agree with you big time nice have you seen girl the dragon tattoo (laughs) wheat woot uh Uh, rooney mara nope m m wheat Wheat woot. woot but also rooney mara wheat woot yeah Okay, Rad Wreck of the Week. Uh, like I mentioned, it's big baby boy's birthday today, and I booked it off of work. That's a Rad Wreck. Book off your birthday. I know that birthdays can be a complicated thing for a lot of people, can conjure up a lot of feelings. I started booking off my birthday a few years ago, kind of based off of something our buddies Sanford and Alex were doing, because there was there's a while there where they would book off, they'd book off like a full week for each other's birthdays, which I think is the sweetest thing in the world. But I found myself going to work on my birthday and being excited. It was my birthday because people would be like, happy birthday, happy birthday. But it's literally just them saying happy birthday in the morning. Then you still need to work for the rest of the day, which is like, I don't want to spend my birthday working. So I've been booking my birthday off for a few years now, whenever it falls on a weekday, haven't looked back. It is truly lovely to just spend a day thinking about yourself and doing things you want to do. I am so happy that you are off today with me and we get to spend the whole day together. So that's the Red Rack. Book off your birthday. Thank you so much for listening. We drop a new episode every Thursday. Until then, you can follow us and slide into our DMs on Instagram at baddad.raddad. You can get a sneak peek of what we've been watching on our individual Letterboxd accounts. Our usernames are in the show notes, and we would absolutely love you forever if you could share us with the rad people in your life and drop us a rating, review, or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever the heck you listen from. That's going to do it for these birthday babes this week, so until next time. I'm Kylie, and my dad's dead. I'm Elliot. My dad's a deadbeat. But remember, not all dads have to be bad. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.